Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. I'm sorry I'm not with you in person today, but it's great to have the opportunity to look at God's Word. I want us to think about Proverbs 2 and then move to Colossians 2. That'll be the main focus for what what I'm thinking about. Uh, So if you've got your Bible there, uh, have those passages marked already perhaps. You should have got an email during the week with the sermon outline in it, and that will help you to follow along with what I want to say. As we come to think about God's Word, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way in which you direct us and train us and encourage us, correct us and rebuke us by it. Please be at work now. Make us willing and ready listeners to your word, especially direct us to Christ and help us to see the fullness of all that he is and what you've done for us in him. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is it that makes life good? What's the formula? What's the trick? What are the things that you do? What are the ingredients you need in the mix for life to run well? For it to make sense, for there to be satisfaction and joy? You can think of the way that people around us would answer that question. I guess they'd often say, have enough money, strong family life, good friendships, a nice work-life balance. The Bible's answer to that question is that it's wisdom. Wisdom is about knowing how the world is and being able to live in a way that fits with how the world is so that life comes together. It may not be easy, but it has a purpose and a direction. Let me read you a proverb from the book of Proverbs that speaks that way. This is from Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4. By wisdom, a house is built. Through understanding, it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. So wisdom has this practical sort of value. It builds a house, and every time I try to do anything associated with building or house maintenance, uh, no matter how many YouTube videos I look at, I'm reminded that I don't have that kind of wisdom very easily. Uh, But I think here that it's not simply the kind of practical wisdom of building a construction. It is a metaphor. It's an analogy. The house is a life. A wise person who has real understanding has a life which is secure and stable. And it's filled with treasure. Again, perhaps literally it makes you prosperous, but but probably the real treasures of love and friendship and satisfaction and joy. That's what wisdom does for you. And so we've just read that passage in Proverbs 2, which is a poem in praise of wisdom, and it urges us to seek wisdom like a treasure, really worth having. Lots of people spend a lot of time and effort and energy investing in making money. This is a better investment. 
Uh, But what is wisdom? Well, wisdom comes from the Lord. Uh, The Lord has made a world that in his wisdom he's made it. You look at the intricacy of the design and and the wonder of how well the world makes and you see something of God's wisdom. But he's also made it possible for us to gain wisdom. Uh, So Proverbs 2.6, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So two things to notice there. One is it comes from the Lord. Second, he does actually give it. It's possible for you to have wisdom. Um, And the verse before, if you find wisdom or as you seek wisdom, you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. And of course, throughout the wisdom literature in the Bible, That is the beginning of wisdom and the end of wisdom is to know God, to fear him, to live reverently before him. And wisdom is the kind of life that flows out of that. And the result of wisdom is protection and direction. Uh, In this passage, as in often in the Bible, especially in wisdom literature, uh, walking is used as an image of for living, you're on a course. You you're, you're walking along a path, and you're directed on that path by wisdom. It gives you guidance. You know where you're going. Uh, so verse seven, he holds the success in front of the upright, in store for the upright. He's a shield for those whose walk is blameless. He guards the course of the just. He protects the way of his faithful ones. You will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. You'll know where to walk and you'll be kept safe and secure as you do it. And so you see why there's a treasure here. Wisdom brings all these blessings. And notice there's no sacred secular division here wisdom is theological we might say it's religious it's knowing and fearing god but it's practical it brings direction and blessing and a life that works wisdom makes life good it connects the parts together and makes it real and satisfying so i want you to keep in mind that description of wisdom as we now come to the book of Colossians. Now, we started looking at this last week, and we've seen some of this already. Paul is writing to a group of Christians who who he's never met, but he's heard about them, and he's heard that they've become Christians, and he's heard that they're a healthy church, which is where things are going well. Uh, That that was in chapter 1. Epaphras, one of their fellow Colossians uh, had travelled, presumably had met Paul somewhere, had become a Christian, then took the message of the gospel back to Colossae and a group of other people at Colossae had become Christians and now Epaphras has gone back to Paul and told him this has happened and how well they're going and Paul has written saying how delighted he is to hear about their faith and their love and their hope. Uh, So here in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, uh, Though I'm absent from you in body, it turns out he's never met them. I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is. Here are people who 
know God, they've grasped the message of Jesus, they've put their faith in him, they're living that out, they're loving each other, they're growing in Christ. It's a real picture of life working well, but there's a threat. And Paul's had this in mind all along, and as he starts to spell out the threat and point to it explicitly in chapter 2, you realise a lot of what he said in chapter 1 was already uh, setting up for this, for what he wants to say here. So here in chapter 2 he speaks explicitly. Verse 4, I'm telling you this so that no one will deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. So they're going well, but there's a real risk that they'll go off course, that they'll be turned aside. These fine-sounding arguments might deceive them. This hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now, the word philosophy in the ancient world didn't just mean the kind of abstract, theoretical, logical debates that we might think about in philosophy. The word philosophy meant love of wisdom. Uh, That word wisdom, sophos, is there in the word philosophy. And so a philosophy is a way of life. It's a teaching that makes life good and makes sense of life. And he says this teaching is not about Christ. Rather, it's about human tradition. It's not God's gift. It's something that humans have come up with. It's about the elemental spiritual forces. At one level, it's focused on on the physical world, but it recognises that the physical world has these spiritual powers related to it, embedded in it. So there's some way in which you can understand the spiritual dimension of life so that you can control your environment and make life good. That's what's being offered in this teaching. But whatever it is exactly, it's not about Christ. Now, people have speculated a lot about exactly what is the false teaching in Colossae. And although we can't pin it down exactly, there are some significant clues that Paul gives us as you hear what he says against it you start to work out a bit of a picture of what it is Uh, so it's offering wisdom and fullness they're two of the words that Paul uses it's offering some kind of deeper spiritual experience and some connection with and protection from spiritual powers that's probably the elemental authority powers of this world Uh, There's some sort of Jewish element. Later on in the chapter, Paul talks about circumcision and then uh, beyond the section we read about religious festivals as well. In verse 18, he says, Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into a great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. They're... It does seem to be about people who've had special spiritual experiences that somehow connect with the angels. And then in verses 20, he warns about rules that are imposed. There there are these rules of do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. He says these rules actually don't have any value for you. So you can imagine the kind of message that they're getting. Follow these rules, follow our secret teaching as well. Listen to our amazing spiritual experiences that we've had and see how you too can have authority over spiritual powers or protection from spiritual powers. You can have the same wisdom and fullness and knowledge that we have 
and uh, have reached the, reach a wisdom, a fullness, and have the same kind of spiritual experiences. This is better than what Paul has told you about. Uh, you've got Jesus, but this adds more. They're probably still talking about Jesus, but they're adding on and offering more. Now, that kind of movement has recurred lots of times in Christian history. Let me tell you about one that's around at present, the Xinjiang Church of Jesus, or sometimes called the New Heaven and New Earth Church, uh, recruiting heavily in parts of Sydney uh, over the last few years and, and around the world. It claims to be about Jesus, but it's really about the leader, Lee Man He, who says he's a messiah, he's the promised pastor, he's the one who overcomes, he's the advocate, uh, he's the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation, and he claims to have received a special revelation from Jesus. That means he is the only person who can properly uh, interpret the book of Revelation, and on Judgment Day, uh, he will come and will take 144,000 of us, his adherents, to heaven with him where they'll enjoy eternal life. Now, as I said, they're aggressively recruiting in Sydney, especially in uh, uh, international students, people with Asian uh, backgrounds. And they approach people looking very Christian. They talk about the Bible and God and Jesus. But the message is you need more than Jesus. He's not enough. You need Pastor Lee as well. Now, that may not be a cult that's likely to influence us, but there are certainly other Christian, or inverted commas, Christian leaders out there who will talk about Jesus but really are saying, you need my teaching, you need to follow my practices, you need me to pray for you, you need to donate to my ministry to have a real experience of God and a great life. And that could be our trap. And then it's worth asking what else in our lives might offer something better than Jesus as an add-on? An add-on that actually ends up subtracting from the gospel. Are there teachings or philosophies or lifestyles that could be sold to us as you need this plus Jesus in order to have a good life? I think there's lots of them. Let me mention two, and, and you can think about others that would be relevant as well. One could be politics. Whether it's progressive green social, pol social justice politics or whether it's libertarian, small government, nationalist politics, uh, we're seeing politics mattering more and more to more people in churches around Australia and around the world and beyond. And there's often an implicit message, at least, that in order to really be part of God's way, you need to have Jesus plus politics, whatever that, whatever version of politics is being promoted. Now, it's obviously good to be politically aware, to be active, to have views, to be responsible in the way you vote. I want Christians certainly to be engaged in the political process. But when the political alignment becomes the key to who you are and to your life and faith, it can actually start to squeeze Jesus out and become the addition that actually subtracts. Or, or let me give you another example. Technology. I, I think we're going to see this more and more over the next few years. 
uh, the, with the rise of biotechnology, that you can be enhanced physically, emotionally, cognitively, morally, even spiritually, to be a better person with the right pharmacology, the right sort of drugs, or with the uh, to be a to be a better, or with sort of neuroelectrical implants. Now, some of that might all seem a little bit um, a, a little bit science uh, science fictiony, but let me give you a quote from Ray Kurzweil, who's Google's director of engineering, a real proponent of human enhancement. He claims that by the end of this decade, technology will add years of life to people. Soon humans might live forever. And his vision is that biotechnology will produce a better human race, humanity 2.0. Now again, we can welcome some of those technical advances, but don't believe that the answer to your life and humanity is found in enhancement. That's not true wisdom. So the Colossian threat, a teaching of philosophy that offers more than Jesus and leads people away from him, is not a one-off. It's a real risk for us as well. So how does Paul respond to this? What's his appeal to the Colossians? I mean, we've seen already, he warns them, he says, don't listen. But he's got a bigger strategy, which is to show them there is nothing better than Christ. And that's summarised in verses 2 and 3, where he says, my desire is that that you'll come to a full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know, he says they may know, but he's talking about them and other Christians, in order they may know, the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So this is where we come back to wisdom. Biblical wisdom is God's gift to know him and worship him and live his way in his world so that life is good. And where is wisdom found? Paul says, in Christ are all the treasures of all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. In fact, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's echoing the words of Proverbs 2. He speaks of Christ being, of this being a mystery of God, which doesn't mean something that's so profound that we can't understand it, although there are aspects of the Christian faith that are like that. But here what the word, the word Paul means by the word mystery is a secret that is God's plan and purpose that has now been revealed. God has explained now his purpose, his wisdom and knowledge have been revealed in Christ. So Paul's saying that everything worth having, every blessing you can imagine, a way of life that works because it's true to the God who is the true God, that's yours in Christ, so don't leave him. He makes the same sort of point in verse 10, where he says, in Christ you have been brought to fullness. And he spells out what that fullness is. Um, And as he does that, he repeats lots of the ideas that he's already set up in chapter 1. 
Now, I could spend a long time stepping through each of these. In fact, each of these uh, blessings and the, the, the reality of the fullness in Christ uh, is, is really worth a sermon by itself. But we're not going to do that today. Uh, and in fact, if we did that, we might miss one of the big points Paul's making by piling all of these up on top of each other to show the totality of the fullness that you have in Christ. So let me just run through them quickly. So you need to hang on. And uh, if you've got your Bible open, it would be helpful to help follow along. What is the fullness we have in Christ? The, the completeness of God's wisdom. Well, we have all of God. Verse 9. In Christ, all is all the fullness of the deity. Jesus is not a lesser God or a demigod or a part of God. He is the full presence of God. If you have Jesus, you can't have more of God. And he is head over all. Verse 10, he is the head over every power and authority, even over the spiritual powers and authorities. But a lot of what Paul said in the first chapter uh, is summed up there. He is the one who is the firstborn and is over all things, even the spiritual powers and authorities. If you have Jesus, you cannot have more of this world. You cannot have more power or more blessing because it is all his and he is yours. You've been renewed. Now, Some of this he says in terms of circumcision as an image of being changed. So verse 11, he says, In him you've also been circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you've also been raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. So the false teachers are probably saying something about Gentile believers need to be circumcised in order to be truly changed and renewed spiritually. Paul's answer is you have that already in Christ. Not a physical circumcision, but you have the reality that you died with him, you've risen again and you're now sharing his new life. If you have Jesus, no one and nothing can give you more new life. And you're forgiven and freed. So again, continuing on in verse 13, he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness that stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The guilt and accusation of sin have been taken away. You've been forgiven. It's that, that wonderful image, isn't it, of a, a charge of all the things that we're guilty of that accuses us. Christ has taken that and nailed it to the cross. There Jesus stood in for you and dealt with the charge. So nothing stands against you any longer. If you have Jesus, there is nothing else required to deal with the guilt of sin. You are accepted by God. And you're victorious and protected. So verse 15, 
having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so Jesus' death looked like a defeat to him, uh, a defeat of him, but the resurrection reversed that. And it turned out that Jesus' death on the cross was a battle against sin and evil and the powers of darkness, and Jesus has defeated them fully. So whatever spiritual powers there are out there, you don't need a charm or some incantation or some extra protection. If you have Jesus, you cannot be more secure. The victorious Redeemer holds you safe. You hear the message? What keeps us from false teachings generally and ideologies, not just being told that they're wrong, There's a place for that, and Paul does that. But the big point is to see that God has come fully and saved utterly and rules completely and blesses lavishly in Jesus. And, you know, we should be in a really good point to see that at this stage of this year, having at church been working through the big story of the Bible, And and so we can see the way in which God's whole plan leads to Christ with the amazing climax completed in him. There is nothing to add. And so here's Paul's word to the Colossians and to us. Stay with Christ and grow in him. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 are really, I think, the theme statement of the whole book. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So he's saying to them, well, go on as you started. There's no second stage in being a Christian. You don't start with Jesus and then move on to something else and some deeper teaching and some secret knowledge. As you receive Christ as Lord, continue. Don't get distracted. It's uh, emphasised with those three little word pictures there in in uh, chapter in verse six. The first one, not so obvious in the ES in the NIV. If you've got the ESV, it says, "As you receive Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him." It's that wisdom terminology. Life is walking on a path. You've started on the Christ path with Him as Lord. Stay on track. Don't wander off. Then there's a biological image or botanical image rooted in him. Think of those wonderful red gums in outback New South Wales living on the the edge of what looks like a dried river or a dried creek, but their tap roots go down deep into the groundwater. Put your roots into Christ and draw on him. And then the architectural image built up. Your foundation is Christ. He's the basis. You can't pick up your building and move to some other foundation. That's actually going to destroy it. But be constructed on that basis. Living in Christ means living under his lordship, obeying him. In Colossians, Christ is Lord includes the fact that he is the supreme firstborn over all and so is the only true Saviour and Redeemer, the source of all wisdom. Make him the centre and basis of your life. As we do that, I want to suggest 
and get you to think about a couple of ways that you could do that to keep going in Christ. I want to suggest some concrete steps to, and I want to encourage you to think of, to, to choose one of these or, or to think of something else that you can do to help yourself remain walking in Christ and rooted in him and built up in him. One, as, one thing is to be secure in the truth. So Paul says here, uh, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. And what he's talking about there is not faith as our response to Christ, but the faith as what we have been taught. So grasp the truth about Christ. Understand that he is the fullness of God, the creator and redeemer, the one who frees and forgives. There is a faith for you to learn and to understand and to go more deeply into. So think about what's one thing you could do through the next few weeks and months, uh, perhaps through the rest of this year, to be more secure in the content of the faith of, about Christ. You could read through a, a gospel over the next few weeks. Uh, perhaps get a good simple commentary and read alongside. Uh, you could read a good book about Jesus. If, if you're looking for suggestions, get in touch with me or uh, any of the pastors or elders would be happy to suggest something to read. Listen to a good podcast or a sermon series that takes you deeper into understanding the gospel of Christ. You might have some questions about Jesus that you've never really resolved uh, don't just put them off. Work on getting them resolved in the next few weeks. Talk to someone about them. What is it that you can do that will help you go deeper in the faith? Paul has a lovely balance. As well as being strengthened in the faith, he also says continue overflowing with thankfulness. It's one of the great themes of Colossians. Thankfulness to God for his redemption of us in Christ. What are some steps that you could take to go on and continue to overflow in thankfulness? Maybe prayer has slipped down the agenda or your practices of daily, daily prayer have slipped during lockdown. I know I've found it hard. In these weeks you need to re-establish that. Do that deliberately including time thanking God for salvation in Christ. Uh, we've seen today lots of the riches of Christ. It would be a great idea to just take one of those each day over the rest of this week and think about it and use it as a basis for thanking God. Uh, one each day. Or you might want to do that in family prayer if you do that together as a family. Uh, meet up with a Christian friend and talk about how things are going but also spend some time actually talking about Jesus and the riches of salvation in him. Find some good music that helps you to thank God for who Jesus is and, um, and, and enjoy listening to that and allowing yourself to express your thankfulness to God. See, that's what makes life good. Knowing God in Christ, remaining with him, and growing in him with thanks. Let's thank him now. We thank you, Lord God, Father, Son and Spirit, for the revelation of your truth in Christ. 
Lord Jesus, you are the full and final revelation of, in, of God and in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We praise you that no one and nothing competes with you or surpasses you. You are supreme, the first, the foremost. In you all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. What a wonder that in you we know God and meet God and see God. Give us fullness. Uh, we thank you that you do. Thank you that you shower every spiritual blessing on us and we lack nothing. That we were condemned, but you forgave us. You've relieved that burden of guilt and we praise you for that. We were dead in sins, enslaved, unable to free ourselves, but you have set us free and raised us to new life. We were ruled and threatened by sin and the forces of darkness, but you have disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Lord Jesus, may we continue to live in you, rooted and built up in you, strengthened in the faith and overflowing with thankfulness. Amen.